0: Acts chapter 17, I'm going to start reading in the first verse, down through verse number 15. Now, when they had passed through Ampipolos and Apollyona, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went unto them in three Sabbath days, reasoned with them out of the scriptures opening and alleging that Christ must have suffered, must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. And some of them believed, consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. But the Jews which believed not moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the, baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. When they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received. And these all do contrary to the decree of Caesar, saying that there is another king. One Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went unto the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Therefore many of them believed, also of honorable women, which were Greeks, and of men, not a few. But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached of Paul at Berea, they came thither also and stirred up the people. And then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go to, as it were, to the sea, but Silas and Timotheus abode there still. And, that they conduct, and they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens, and receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus, for to come to him with all speed, they departed. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I certainly love you. Lord, I ask for your mercy and your grace and your help. Lord, I pray that your word would certainly feed your people today. Lord, control what I say and how I say it. Lord, I pray that I would stay true to your word. Please use it to draw us closer to you. To increase our knowledge of you, to strengthen us and meet the needs that are here. Lord, I do pray if there's anyone here who has never truly been converted. Lord I pray for that conviction and that drawing that even today they repent and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord may you be glorified and honored, I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen <clears throat> I started this message a couple of weeks ago before I went to uh, Korea, so this is part two of that message. And Paul, of course, is on his second missionary journey. The Lord has led him into Europe. He's already been to his first location. That was in Philippi. We all know what happened in Philippi when he was there. Of course, he had, you had the, the, the Lydia who was led to the Lord. There wasn't enough men there for a synagogue to be established. So he they were meeting by the riverside, which would have been common. And Lydia and her household get saved. And we know Paul ends up in prison. And we, we looked at that several weeks ago, how the Lord used that imprisonment to actually protect that church at Philippi when Paul was gone. So Paul leaves Philippi, and that's where we pick up chapter 17, and and he stops at two locations, just because they're each about 30, 40 miles apart. He was going to Thessalonica. Paul's program and missions was always this, he always headed to the major towns and expected when he established a church there to reach out into the outlying uh, uh, towns and cities that were close by. And he headed to Thessalonica. You can listen to the last message. I got into great review of Thessalonica, and it was the capital city of Macedonia. Uh, It was a a major city. It was a crossroads, certainly crucial that a church gets established in in Thessalonica. And keep in mind, for us that are saved right now, much of what we're seeing take place, the foundation being laid in that first century through the establishment of these churches is going to be directly tied to our own salvation, with the gospel being spread throughout the world. And so we looked at this last week. We looked at the charge uh, that, Paul was, that was made against Paul. And that is that these men, Paul, uh, Timothy, and Silas, Luke is left in Philippi. That these men have turned the world upside down. I mean, what a great charge to be leveled against you. They you're causing such a stir, such an uproar over the gospel. And of course, the truth is the world is upside down. We're just trying to get it right side. And so the charge is made, and, and, and we see all that was taking place. We're going to get more into that this week. But what I want to focus on with the message is this, as I started a couple weeks ago. What was it about them that allowed them to be labeled such as men who turned the world upside down, men who actually made a difference? A couple of weeks ago, I gave this quote. It says, there are people who watch things happen, there are people who make things happen, and there are people who don't know what's happening. We want to be the people who make things happen. That's true in your family. You want to be that person that makes things happen. That's true in your workplace where you're at. You want to be somebody that makes things happen. What makes the difference, though, between men like Paul? I talked about Elijah making such a difference. Jeremiah making a difference. Look, several people where they made such a tremendous difference. They made things happen. And We all certainly recognize that change needs to happen in our own communities, in our nation. I mean, the direction of our nation right now is frightening. You want to talk about a world turned upside down right now, uh, of people calling evil right. I mean, the absurdity of what we're seeing take place right now almost on a daily basis is just incredible. Some Some things that are so obvious and people believe in delusions and lies. We certainly need the ability to make a difference in our world. And as we go through this text, we see five things that led to the charge of Paul turning the world upside down. We looked at the first two last week. That was to propel and to provoke. In other words, he was going everywhere. Paul went, he was going. He was active. And if you don't get in the mindset of seeing your responsibility—that that we are the ones with the truth. We are the ones that are going to make the difference. It's not going to be the politicians. It's not going to be the next president of the United States. It's not going to be the U.S. Senate that makes the difference. It's going to be us who have the truth of the creator of the universe. Paul realized that and he saw. He knew what he had. The truth is, as Paul was preaching to the people, we do actually already have in place the king of kings. He is in control. We, we spent the bulk of the time on the second one where it talked about Paul reason with him out of the scriptures, and that was where I finished. How Paul used that to provoke. How that word meant to have dialogue. How when Paul presented the gospel, he just didn't preach a straightforward sermon and that was it. He preached, certainly, the word of God, but then he opened it up for questions, he had dialogue. He wanted them to ask questions. He was ready to answer those. And we dealt with that a couple weeks ago. Be ready to, to answer those questions. How, in our own circles, going back to the 1970s and 80s, we were actually taught that as you're presenting the gospel, which was usually a very shallow, rapid gospel, 3.10, Romans 3.10, 3.23, 5.8, Romans 10.9 and 10. Then get them to pray that prayer. That if they ask the question, just say, you'll get back to it. You are taught to stay on target. Well, no, the, what we were missing out was the importance of answering those questions. Of them crying out those questions, give me a reason to believe. Again, I can think of all the people going back to my high school years when I believed I had to dismiss the questions, when out of the blue they would ask questions like, what about the dinosaurs? What about languages? What they were crying out was saying, listen, give me a reason to believe. This is why I've been told the Bible isn't true. And, and me just saying, no, that, we'll get back to that. Paul reasoned with them. He answered their questions. Be ready to reason with those. Be ready to answer those questions. So he left off there last week looking at the first to prevail, or propel and to provoke. And now... We'll move on. We're going to see the last three here this morning. First off, he proved. He proved or persuaded. Look at verse number three of our text. In verse number two, he reasoned with them out of the scriptures. And then we see, secondly here, and Paul, verse three, opening and alleging. That Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. What a great verse. Have so much for us right here. Now, not not only was he seeking to provoke to reason with them to believe, he gave them something really to believe in. As I finished up last week, I, I said our, our faith is reasonable. It's defensible. I mean it's it's true. There, it's not This isn't some shallow little fairy tale that we believe in. I mean, the truth is, the Word of God actually makes sense in relation to everything that goes on in this world, from why we got here, how we got here, and why we're here. It's not some shallow little fairy tale. So what Paul does now, as he heads into the synagogue, is he's going to reason with them, but he proves it. We hear today often, you can't prove God. And how many times do we hear preachers say, that's right, we can't prove God. I'm like, what do you mean we can't prove God? What an absurd statement really it is. Just look around. How do you think we got here? Well, evolution. There was a really big bang. The stupidity. The ignorance. The willful ignorance to believe that nothing created everything. Pure stupidity, pure willful ignorance that is just a direct, a, a direct attack or direct rebellion against God and not wanting to acknowledge Him at all. What all you have to do is look around at this universe and it screams Creator. The fact that we're here breathing, uh, spinning at this perfect speed, a perfect distance from a ball of fire in the sky, proves creation. If there's creation, guess what? There's a creator. Creation proves God. The Bible tells us here that he opened and alleged. Do we need to do this when we talk with others? Do so we need to avoid such shallow presentations that we had? We want to be the people that turn the world upside down. We want to be able to prove to persuade. Verse 3 says opening and alleging. The word opening is the same word that we see in Luke chapter 20 ver 24 and verse 32 remember where they were talking when he was talking to those disciples on the road they're after the resurrection. and, and it, Let's turn there. Let me, let me read that verse. It's, it's one of my favorite sections in the book of Luke. <clears throat> let's back up a few verses earlier. This is after the resurrection. Verse 25, Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart, Believe all that the prophets uh, uh, um, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, He expounded unto uh, unto them in all the Scripture the things concerning Himself. Now drop down to verse thirty-two. And they said one to another. Did not our heart burn within us while He talked with us, by the way, while He opened to us the Scriptures? I mean, as they were seeing it made clear, wait, this is in the Old Testament. This is exactly what should have happened. Everything that's taken place with the suffering, the cross, His death, His resurrection, and it was open to them. We need the ability when we're talking, and the Spirit of God does this as we're going to see, where we have, when we're communicating with others, where it's not a form of manipulation. Where it's actually their eyes are open, their heart is open where they see it. I mean, think back to when you got saved. I still remember when the pastor was leading me to the Lord, sitting down there. I always knew, I heard it over and over, that Christ died on the cross for my sins. Had you asked me before I got saved that I believe Jesus Christ was the Son of God, died on the cross, was buried, and rose again? I would say, yes, I did. I I was raised Catholic. But really, the understanding of that wasn't there. As that pastor was leading me to the Lord, I remember the lights coming on. I'm like, wait, I get it. I understood what it meant that he died for me. What that death signified, what that was all about. know what happened? Through the reasoning of scriptures, it was opened. At that point, I had a decision to make what I was going to do with that truth. The word open there means to explain, to unfold. It is usually applied to something that is shut, as the eyes. It means to explain what is concealed or obscure. It means to explain the scriptures in their true sense. Again, it's not manipulating people to get them to pray a prayer. It's preaching in such a way that their eyes are opened. I remember one of the most dramatic fashions I've seen of that. I was back, I think it was on a furlough or debutation from New Guinea. I don't remember which. And I was preaching in Lineville, Alabama, a small little church, like 15, 20 people. And me and the pastor were going out to doing a little bit of door-to-door, and he wanted to go by a flea market. So we went by the flea market, and, uh, we're, we anyhow, there was one lady there and we got talking and she, knew you know, I was a missionary and the pastor was there. She knew of the pastor from something previous. And, and she told me, she goes, you know what? I have been a member of every single church. That's her words. And then she listed them. I mean, boom, I, I, I would imagine. I'm not certain probably every church in her town at some point she was a member of. And so I sat down, she had a little table, so I sat down, gave me a chair, sat down, and I said, well, uh, let me go over this. Let me talk with you about this. Because clearly, if, 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 if you're a member of everything, there's confusion there whether you, know, whether you believe it or not. There's something you don't understand. You can't be a member of all of it. And so I'm going through the gospel, and it was pretty deep, because by this time, in this public flea market now, a significant crowd had gathered. And there's people all around listening to it. And I'm going through the gospel as clear as I could. And I got to, again, my favorite verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21. I just finished explaining it. And then you could see it open. She said, I get it. And she burst into tears, head went down just weeping. And said, I get it. And right there she put her faith in Christ. And just like we're going to see here, conflict was right around the corner. Oh, her husband who was standing there was furious. Not a happy camper whatsoever. And as we're going to see, when you preach the gospel, that's the two reactions you're going to get. You're going to get some who convert and some who are going to produce conflict right away. It also says, allege, which I love. It means to expound. It means using the scriptures, expounding upon what's in the scriptures. It's amazing today how much expository preaching and teaching gets attacked. It's not rolling commentary, it's expounding, it's drawing out what is in the Scripture. It's not you starting with an idea and trying to go to the Bible to prove it, it's simply drawing out what is there. That is biblical preaching. It's as if we don't believe the Bible can meet the needs, it certainly can. We need to be able to use the Bible to open up, to explain, to expound, to, with the purpose of persuading, proving to the end that leads to a conversion. Our purpose is not to prove that we're right. Not that we have a, a better position. Our goal is conversion. So the question is, what did Paul use? What was the opening? What did he allege? What did he explain? Well, it tells us in our text, look at it there. It says this. It says, opening and alleging that Christ, now keep in mind, he's oh, oh, Jesus is the Christ. That wasn't how he approached this. That the Christ, the Messiah that they all knew was coming, must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. Let's stop at that point first. first. we'll get to a second one after that. So what he was going to try and open up to them, to allege, to prove to them, that the Messiah that is talked about in the Word of God must have suffered, must have died, and must have resurrected from the dead. Keep in mind who his audience is right now. He always went to the synagogue first. So he's going to the synagogue. These people are monotheistic. They believe in the one God, the true Creator. He's starting with, with the basis of what they know and what they believe to be true. He's starting at that point with them and going from there. He knows that every single one of them have a belief, a hope, and a faith in a Messiah that is to come. So he starts there. He sets out to prove that that Messiah, different than what they were taught, actually has to suffer. Actually has to be killed. And has to be raised again from the dead. This would be new to them. So where would he go in the Old Testament? What was the basis of Paul's argument? Where did Because it says he opened to them the Scriptures. He said, listen, this is what you need to see. He didn't provide just some fancy story, little illustrations. He didn't try and tell them some tear-jerking story to get an emotional decision from them. Because conversion relies on the hearing of truth. And the moral decision of a person to say, yes, that's what I want. <clears throat> so where did he go? So we don't have it exactly, but we have a good idea of what he would have went to. I believe it's possible he would have laid a foundation first. Where they all would agree that when this Messiah does come, he probably went to Micah 5 2 He'd be born at Bethlehem. We're out of Bethlehem. This king would come. The Messiah would come. I'd imagine maybe he even brought up Genesis chapter 49. That he would be of the tribe of Judah. And they'd all be saying, amen, that's right. The Messiah has to come out of Bethlehem. He has to come out of the tribe of Judah. He would bring up maybe Isaiah 11, uh, verse 1 and verse 10. He has to be a descendant from Jesse, the royal line of David. Every single one of them would say, yes, that's right. We're in full agreement with you. Keep on preaching. I imagine he would have went to, because I love that text, Daniel chapter 9, 24 through 27. This it would have started getting very interesting for them. Because that talks about the time of the Messiah being cut off. Not only does it talk about the time of the Messiah being cut off, it gives down to the year when it would take place. Daniel 9, 24 through 27. I think it's possible he went to that text. But then after he laid a foundation, we know from what it says in Acts 17, he was going to prove this. That the Messiah had to suffer. That the Messiah had to die. And that the Messiah had to be raised from the dead. That would be new. That's what was not taught. They, they were looking for a Messiah to come to establish a kingdom because that is talked about in the Old Testament. Especially uh, from from the Jewish standpoint Because the truth is though In their Messiah Sadly because of pseudo-Judaism had formed They were not looking for a redeemer for their soul They were looking for political freedom You know where I think Paul went? Let's turn there Isaiah chapter 53 I think Paul got that scroll out that he asked for the scroll of Isaiah. He went to this chapter, chapter 53. And he's going to begin making a case that this chapter is in fact dealing with the Messiah. I'll read sections throughout this chapter. Verse 3. He is despised. And rejected of men. A man of sorrows. And acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Perhaps then expounding on that, talking of what he knew of his own life. How he rejected him. How he denied him. How he fought against him as the Messiah. In no way believing that he was possibly the Christ. How he was the ringleader. How he esteemed him not. And then how Isaiah 53, maybe he even talked when he heard Stephen preach. How maybe even Stephen using Isaiah 53 and Paul seeing those words, him being guilty of the rejection of the Messiah. Verse 4 Surely he hath borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Not understanding yet why he was suffering. Thinking this is his punishment. But verse 5. But. This is where the scriptures were opened unto him. He was wounded for our transgressions. Not for his. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All oh, we like sheep have gone astray and have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Wow. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. I bet you then he expounded on the trial. Of how, how three to four times he was proclaimed directly, he is innocent. And yet you don't hear him crying out. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off of the land of the living. And for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked, with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. In verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see a seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. A judicial term. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. I think he went here. Beginning to demonstrate what they didn't understand yet about the Messiah. Opening their understanding reasoning through the Scriptures about how he had to suffer. About his death. About why that was taking place. Beginning to tie in how everything that Christ did on this earth was to save them from the coming judgment. Not from a political captivity of Rome. I think he went to Psalm 22 turn over to Psalm 22 <clears throat> He's going to show them that the Messiah in scripture had to suffer, he had to die. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 1 My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words and of my roaring? Verse 16, for dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Verse 18, they part my garments among them and cast lots among my vesture. I could just see him now arguing what happened at the cross and telling him this is what happened to this man. The very things that we read in Scripture happened to this man. This man that was born in Bethlehem of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of David, of him being declared innocent at his trial, of the very words we see in the Old Testament that were uttered out of his mouth, of the events talked about happening to him, how he was pierced on that cross. Crucified. And then in Psalm 16, look at Psalm 16. I think Paul would have used this text. This is the same text, if we remember, of Acts chapter 2 that Peter preached to the nation of Israel, proving Jesus is the Christ. Verse 10. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see Corruption the necessity of a resurrection. And then Paul proclaiming the resurrection of how he himself had met the risen Christ, the one he had been fighting against. So there is Paul going through the scripture saying, listen, here's what you need to know about the Messiah that you did not know yet. That the Messiah, when he does come, that he's going to have to suffer. He's going to have to suffer greatly, bearing our iniquities. He's going to have to die. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be pierced. But he's going to be raised from the dead. Now imagine his audience hearing this in that synagogue that day. Here's Paul just expounding, being so clear, elaborating on the Scriptures. Many of their eyes being opened, seeing it right there. Their understanding is coming in. I think many of them just stunned. Paul, once he established what the Old Testament said, notice what he did back in Acts 17. Notice the order here. Opening and alleging that Christ must have suffered and risen again from the dead. And this is what he did next. And that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. Going through, and just as I've already explained, elaborating how Jesus himself fit everything the scriptures talked about in relation to the Messiah. One commentator said this, The most convincing argument for the truth of who Jesus Christ is is the absolute and total fulfillment of prophecy. It's incredible all the prophecies perfectly fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, think back, think back to those disciples after Christ began to expound to them the Scriptures, how their eyes were opened, realizing, wait, this is exactly what the Old Testament has talked about. This is what had to happen. That's exactly what Paul is preaching. He's going in there saying, now listen, I I want to establish something with you that must have happened to the Messiah. Because they all believed that the Messiah was coming. At this time, when he's preaching to the groups in the synagogue, he's not talking about turning from paganism and idolatry right now. They've already made that decision. He's trying to get them to see that the Messiah of the Old Testament would have to suffer, uh, be crucified, and raised from the dead. showing how, like we saw in Isaiah 53, how this is the means of our salvation. In other words, it's clicking in many of their minds right now. Wait, it's it's not the law. It's, it's what the Messiah did. He bore our iniquities. He suffered for my transgressions. And then I could just hear Paul going on from the Scriptures, going back into the books of Moses, saying... Let me explain to you why God set up our sacrificial system. Let me explain to you how Christ was in fact the perfect Lamb of God. How what we did in the Passover pictured what He did on the cross. How He talked about the words of John the Baptist, the forerunner who was there in Scripture. Telling him how he first saw Christ when Christ came unto him. When John himself proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And there was a response to the preaching of Paul. It tells us in verse 4 that many converted. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas. And of the devout Greeks, a great multitude. And of the chief women, not a few. Boy, when many hear the truth of Scripture, God's Spirit working on their heart, many will desire to convert. Paul had to be just so thrilled seeing so many converting unto the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting here, why is it that, that there was much more of the Greeks who converted? Now, remember, these Greeks were proselytes. They were in the synagogue. So, so they're in there, but many more of them converted than the actual Jews. Some of the Jews did, but multitudes of the Greeks. Well, think about it. That makes perfect sense. For the Greeks to be in a synagogue, that, means, that already tells you without a doubt they are looking for truth. They're searching truth. They've left the paganism. They've left the idolatry. They've come to the conclusion there is one true God. And the danger in the synagogue with many of the Jews is this. It was just culture. It wasn't about truth. It's just what they grew up with. God always responds to those who are seeking truth. And so Paul sees multitudes converting. But not only did some convert, but as I brought up earlier, others began to cause conflict. The Jews who chose to reject caused conflict. Again, when the gospel is preached, there's always going to be a reaction. Whether that is conversion or conflict... As we know, the unbelieving Jews, they went and got some lewd fellows. They're going to cause a, a, an uproar. I talked about that a couple of weeks ago. They, 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 this is leading to a riot. They're trying to get to Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They can't find him. They bring Jason out of the house. And so Jason gives them a security. Basically, probably some type of financial thing was involved there that Jason was assuring that Paul would not return. I'll make sure he is gone, that he doesn't return, and that satisfied the leadership of the town of Thessalonica. But it's true. When you begin to preach Christ, conflict will come. It's a battle. Don't be surprised. Be ready spiritually. We live in such a weak, anemic... It seems... <clears throat> it seems not, not, it's certainly not true of all, but we can be so weak at times and so anemic in our faith... Not willing to face any conflict. We need to put on the armor and be ready for conflict. If we're going to make a difference, if we're going to turn the world upside down, it's not going to be easy. There's going to be conflict. Not only do we see that Paul proved, the fourth thing we see here was he was persistent. He was persistent. It says, jumping over to verse number Let me jump over to verse number 10. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews, and he began to do like he always did. He preached there. So what we see here about Paul, something else about him, was how persistent he was. Here he is escaping out at night, He heads to Berea. Berea was still, I I talked about a couple weeks ago, it was a major town. It was off the main roadway where he was, but it was still a major town. And he heads there, and he goes right back into the synagogue to preach. I mean, think about this. So far, in his second missionary journey has begun just with a bang. Philippi, he gets beaten severely, thrown in prison. He gets to Thessalonica, a riot occurs, and he's run out of town. He comes to Berea now. He doesn't say, okay, listen, I'm just going to stop here for a little while and catch my breath. He heads right to the synagogue. He's persistent. He doesn't stop. He preaches again. And it describes those here in Berea. In verse 11. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. So he comes in and he finds that these are more ready. It's interesting when you compare this group with those in Thessalonica. Now the end result of conversion was the same. But it's true, when we're presenting the gospel, you're going to find some who are so ready. You're going to find others, you need to do much more proving, if you will. Much more reasoning with the scriptures. It describes these people as being noble. Now, notice what makes you noble before God. It's not your family line. It's not how much money you have in the bank. It's not what position you hold. It's how you receive the Scripture. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the Scripture with all readiness of mind. It was their response to the Word of God. They heard Paul, and they said, You know what? Let's look at this. If that's true, this is what we need to believe. And that's exactly what they did. And once again, multitudes converted. He sees a multitude of people coming to know Christ as their Savior, believing that Jesus is in fact the Savior, and placing their faith in that truth. We need to be able to make our gospel presentation clear. So one that people can ask questions, and that if they go to the Bible, they can see it. It's there. Paul stayed persistent. One thing that tends to hinder us is we're not persistent with it. Especially when it comes to the, we're, we're, it's like a roller coaster. When the winds of revival blowing, we're great with wanting to tell others. But it's like we, we allow how we're feeling to determine if we're going to present the gospel or not. I don't think Paul felt much like presenting the gospel when he went there but he knew what he had he knew what had to be done he stayed persistent with it determined to stay at it <clears throat> the truth is we need to allow what motivates us our love for god and our desire to obey him to allow that be the motivation for why we continue to preach the gospel to others don't look at the storm don't look at the circumstances you're in just stay focused on god and do what's right and then lastly, here today, we also see it's going to take not only persistence, the proving, it's also going to take personal sacrifice. Look at what takes place here. <clears throat> We've seen 11 and 12 how multitudes do come to Christ and they believe. Verse 13 But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the Word of God was preached to Paul at Berea, they came thither also and stirred up the people. So once again, we see conflict once again with conversion at the preaching of the gospel. But I want you to notice something in verse 14. And then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go as it were to the sea. But Silas and Timotheus abode there still. And they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens. And receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timothy for to come to him with all speed they departed. What we see here is Paul was willing for personal sacrifice to take place. If we're going to make a difference in this world, it's going to take sacrifice. I believe this time when he left Berea, just put yourself in his place. We view him as a superhuman. He wasn't. He wasn't. He's now leaving Berea. And know what he tells Silas and Timothy? I need you to stay here. You can't come with me right now. Stay. They need more truth. They need to be discipled. And so Paul heads to Athens alone. I don't think that was easy, but he knew what was more important. He was willing to put what was of necessity above his own comfort, above what he was dealing with in the moment. He had Silas and Timothy' stay, Paul going by himself alone to Athens. He cared much for the growth of all of his converts. Much more so than his own comfort. Again, make no mistake, this would be very tough on the Apostle Paul. I could not imagine, especially being to Paul, although he certainly was a traveler. Traveling wasn't new to Paul from his youth on up. We've already looked at that. But still, now he's coming into Athens. He's never been there before. This will be his first time into that city. All alone wondering what's going on in Thessalonica. Remember, as we we just complete, we just completed first and second Thessalonians on Wednesday nights. We saw the great concern Paul had when he left. All that burden is upon him. He's alone. There's nobody for him to talk to. There's no texting going on. There's no mobile phones to get a hold of somebody. None of that's taking place. He has no idea what's happening. He had to be confident of this very thing, that he which hath began a good work in you were performed into the day of Jesus Christ. He was a man that knew how to live by faith in those difficult days. That's what carries you through when it comes time for sacrifice. This would have been tough. We live in a time, though, where we want to avoid sacrifice. But if we're going to turn the world upside down, it's going to involve personal sacrifice, a willingness to sacrifice. We live in an age where we have been brought up when it's just, if it's convenient, serve God. If it's convenient. Where God today, in many circles, is taught basically to be your personal genie. We see that with the, the uh, uh, wealth movement and the charismatic, that God's just there to make you rich. What a bunch of nonsense. Think about that. Those who want to use God as their genie, that is no different at all than the pagan religions in the history of the world. Of trying to use the gods to their end. The truth is, serving God involves sacrifice, which is our reasonable service. Romans twelve one. Romans 12, 1. If you're only going to serve God when it's convenient, you're never going to make a difference in your world. And the truth is, we fail to see the opportunity to serve when it's not convenient. How, I mean, think about Think about in relation to your own spouse. It's, it's when you show love to your spouse that is not in an expected way. That shows love. I mean, on an anniversary, you're supposed to go on a date. You're supposed to get something nice. It's expected. But when it's not convenient and you still do something, that shows love. Think about this before God. I mean, we just want, it's almost like, again, we put God in a box. This is how we're going to serve God. If it's convenient, God, God, if you'll make it convenient, I'll do it. I mean, sometimes I think the Lord's up in heaven just like, mm, wow. God, if you just open up all the doors so it's just so convenient for me, I will serve you. Instead of seeing it as an opportunity when it's not convenient to say, Lord, man, I get to sacrifice for this. Remember when they were beaten in, in, in Book of, in, as we, earlier in Acts? They rejoiced. Why? Look what we got to do for the Lord. Sometimes I think we fail to see the need. We fail to see how great God is and what debtors we actually are. Too often we make our religion, our Christianity, all about us and not about God. And by the way, that's the exact reason we see so many churches changing. They're making it about the people and not about God. It's all about Him. It's all about Him. With heads bowed and eyes closed.